Radio Elk Grove. Is the school board a rubber stamp? How can we fix labor problems? We ask Jake Rambo. Welcome to Radio Elk Grove, Elk Grove's only internet radio magazine. I'm your host, Danny Gomez. Thanks for tuning in. Trustee Jake Ramble was appointed by the sitting school board, yet many of his endorsers call him the independent voice for the board. We interview Mr. Rambo, we ask many of the tough questions that have been bothering voters, and put him to the test. On today's Radio Elk Grove, let's look into it together. Are you subscribed to Radio Elk Grove? It's free, and we're working hard to bring you a unique perspective on our city. So click the subscribe tab on our homepage, or you can search and like Radio Elk Grove on Facebook, or text follow Radio Elk Grove to 40404 to receive Twitter updates. Stay in the know by staying connected. Jake Rambo is an administrative law judge for the California Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board and was appointed last March to fill the seat of midterm retiree from the EGUSD Board of Trustees, Priscilla Cox. Now, just eight months later, Rambo seeks approval of the voters for the decision handed down by the school board at his appointment proceeding. Interesting is the fact that his lone opponent, was one of the appointment candidates at that time, Steve Lee, who Radio Elk Grove interviewed in a live program last September. You can click on our story page to hear that interview. We met with Mr. Rambo at his mock trial classroom at Elk Grove High School, where for many years he's trained young people for regional, state, and national law competitions. Rambo pointed with pride to the many awards his teams have won and the high percentage of his former students that have entered highly competitive fields, not just law, but medicine, engineering, and more. We asked Mr. Rambo what moved him to apply for the board appointment last March that has led to this election bid. I think it's a compelling uh, interest and in, in love for this district and, and a, a compassion and passion for the quality education for students here. Um, this, this district... I owe so much of my success and who I am to the education I received in Elk Grove Unified. And I've, from the day I graduated, I've been involved working with at-risk kids as a, through the teen center, uh, coaching at Elk Grove High, being a mentor. I even worked for a short time as a substitute teacher for the district. I, you know, to, to whom much is given, much is expected, and that's been my approach. I was given so much uh, by this district, and so I want to give back. And serving on the board was the natural progression of that for me. Now, has your focus changed in any way since you've gotten some time in the trenches? I don't know that my focus has changed. It's definitely sharpened. It, um, you begin to really see the peril that public education faces. Uh, you know, the, the, when I was here as a student in the district, we had... Uh, the challenge was overcrowding. The district was growing faster than we could come up with, with schools for kids, and the board had to react to that crisis. I don't think anybody would have ever anticipated that the state, the next crisis would be the state taking $110 million from the district over four years and then passing a budget uh, this year that would cut another 24 to $27 million from the district, uh, you know, essentially putting us in the position of having to figure out which good programs stay and which good programs go. We're, we're long past the 
the phase of being able to, to trim the fat. Besides the budget, what are the major challenges for schools in the next four years, which would be the term of your office coming forward? First and foremost, it's going to be the um, all of the symptoms and the ramifications of the fi- financial crisis, because in the event that things turn around and we do get back to where we need to be, uh, we've lost. We've lost quality teachers who may have left the profession. We may have the funding to staff up, but how are we going to uh, replace and restore those um, individuals? What programs how do we bring back programs? What programs do we bring them back and to what degree and what's the scope on that? The um, facilities, I think, is going to continue to be a challenge um, and in, a, in different ways because we still anticipate significant growth. We have uh, a large community in Anatolia that's really isolated from the rest of the district because of distance. Uh, they are part of the city of Rancho Cordova, yet somewhat isolated from the rest of that city as well. Uh, we have to f- we have to determine how we can address the need for schools out there. It's going to present a funding challenge to us if we don't um, move in that direction because those those students are going to be attracted and pulled to Folsom Cordova as they build new schools closer to Anatolia, and and also we want we need you know there are kids we need to make sure that we're providing a quality education for them. It's it's uh, troubling that they have to ride the bus 45 minutes a day each way right now to get to PG and uh, Catherine Elbiani. Uh, but, but we're going to have to address that. At the same time, we have, we have a lot of aging schools. And so, we, you know, we've already started that process with Kasumnas River Elementary uh, before I came on the board and now Dillard with the new facility for Dillard Elementary. Uh, we're going to have to look at other elementaries. You know, we have, we have schools that are in need of renovation, repair, and, and probably replacement. So proactively, how as a board member can you do something about these issues? Well, in terms of the facilities issue, one of the things I've tried to do is, is get out, interact with the development community, get a sense of where houses are going so we know where those houses are going to be built, what their, what their timelines are, what their anticipation is uh, for building, what they're seeing in their industry. Uh, in terms of renovating and, and dealing with some of the older campuses, you have to be real sensitive. We need to be on those facilities. We need to be out as a board member, seeing what's going on at the schools, and then really working closely with facilities. Uh, one of the most important steps towards that is uh, effectively managing the, the bonds that are used to build schools. You, know, you saw on Tuesday night the board, uh, we passed a refinancing measure for our bonds. And the important thing about that refinancing is we're currently at about 103, 104% coverage on our debt payment, meaning the taxes that come into that bond payment exceed the cost of the bond payments um, by 3 to 5%. We need, we need to continue to increase that ratio because we're sitting on $54 million in bond authorization that we really can't sell until we have uh, better coverage. Better coverage is going to come through new housing and growth, but it's also going to come if we can take ma- effectively manage the bond market, take advantage of refinancing opportunities. And then, uh, you know, as the, we need to be sensitive and be watching for those big repairs and making sure that the, f- the funds and, the, and the, the needed infrastructure, financial infrastructure, is in place so that small repairs are dealt with before they become big repairs. I think you've seen our facility staff do a remarkable job despite the funding challenges, um, but it's something we're going to have to be uh, very, very attuned to. The board is sometimes perceived as being a rubber stamp of staff. How really does the board get things done? How do they work with staff? 
Well, I can't address the rest of the board members. I think everyone has their own method, and uh, I, I can tell you how I've gone about things. You know, I, I was teasing Dr. Laddie, and I were just speaking again this morning. I said, I, I said, you know, when I go on vacation, I probably won't talk to you for two and a half weeks. Uh, I'm, I'm on the phone with staff regularly. When I hear about problems or hear about issues, I communicate with staff. Um, I've, I'm assigned to work closely with the facilities department right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm in communication with Mr. Pierce on a regular basis, trying to get to know and understand the intricacies of these details. Uh, you know, I've, I ask a lot of challenging questions. Sometimes they're not, they're not done from the dais, but I think you, one of the things you've noticed, Danny, you've been at a lot of our meetings. Um, I, I do ask a lot of tough questions. I don't, uh, you know, I don't. I see my. I, I don't. I don't listen to a, a report and uh, assume that I assume that it's that we had all the answers. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I've heard this from staff. I think it. I think they appreciate the tough questions. It allows them to really demonstrate to the community the degree of thought and the and the preparation that's gone into uh, the, to the research uh, on the item that comes before the board. I think the community appreciates those tough questions. Uh, because it gives greater it, it gives greater um, confidence in the actions were taken, you know. You, you we ultimately may not deviate from the proposal from staff, but I think it, it's incumbent upon us as the board, even if we know sometimes know the answer to the question, to ask the question so that the community hears the answer, and so that we can uh, better involve folks and better uh, can uh, instill confidence in our processes as a board. Well, that really points to a question I was wanting to ask you because our school board and the district, they're not always very transparent in how they do things. While this seems to keep politics out of the boardroom, it ends up looking to voters and parents as if there's a backroom action going on. To what do you attribute this, at least it's a cultural bent that they've had in the past? I think part of it is that, that, that there's been a long history of board members being elected and staying on the board. There hasn't been a lot of turnover. Now that has its positives. Mm -hmm. uh, you definitely develop institutional memory. You know why policies have been developed because they're still in place. Uh, you, in, in you know, 20 years later, you still have board members who are involved in developing the initial policy. The downside is sometimes, and I don't want to use the word complacency, but sometimes because of that institutional knowledge, there's that less less of a desire to be proactive in terms of asking those difficult questions, getting that information, because you already do know those answers uh, mm -hmm. sometimes. I can tell you that uh, to the extent that there's any sense that the board is uh, marches in lockstep, you need only look at some of our more recent board meetings to know that that's just not the case. Um, and to the extent that there's a sense that the board is, uh, there's some kind of in cahoots or things going behind the scenes, I can tell you I have I have really appreciated the sensitivity to which board members approach that issue. You know, folks, you, you mentioned the Brown Act. Not everyone understands that uh, on any given issue, you can't go out and lobby the other board members. I love the TV show Parks and Rec. It's kind of a farcical take on on government. You know, last night's episode, the uh, council member is out lobbying each member of the council to get votes for her bill. That doesn't happen. That's against the law. We don't do that. Uh, you know, we have one-on-one -on -one inter interaction with the superintendent on a regular basis where we will offer policy proposals and suggestions for things we would like to see. Staff will research that and they'll get, you know, they solicit input from other board members, uh, but not in a, an attempt to violate the law or develop consensus. Um, it it kind of gets a sense of where, where staff should be going as they prepare to answer questions. Sometimes those issues come to the board as a policy recommendation. Sometimes they don't.
Would you feel that more transparency in their interactions, more communication or discourse publicly would actually benefit the board, the district, the whole process? Yes, and I've tried to lead by example on that. You know, you've seen, you've seen me asking a lot more questions than I think may have been asked in the past. I, I, don't, I don't shy away from asking difficult or probing questions of staff. And again, I think staff appreciates it. Now, I will tell you a lot of times in advance, I let staff know this is what I'm going to be asking you about up there tonight because I want them to be able to answer it. This isn't gotcha or, or games like that. I ask for a lot of information, and I get a lot of information. Yeah. I, I think we also need to be more proactive. We, we have to continue to be proactive. I don't want to say more proactive. Continue to be proactive, getting out into the community, holding the uh, town halls and the visits with principals, you have, to, you have to, as a board member, be effective at getting information through multiple uh, sources. You, you can't just depend upon the information that filters up through official channels because there's so much more information out there, so many different perspectives. You can't rely on favorite parent groups, this parent group, that parent group. You've really got to develop as many channels as possible. I'm a voracious news reader. I read every blog, every website, every newspaper don't necessarily agree with all the conclusions offered, but it gives me a sense of what is the temperature of that segment of the population. There's a, there's a um, real view of the board as trustees, which is appropriate. I mean, they are your trustees. Uh, at the same time, though, it almost suggests that, there's a, that they're inured from public opinion. Now, as I see it, or uh, my research, there's three parties to a trust. There's a trustee, the beneficiary, that's the kids, and then there's the trustor, which in this case is the parents, the public. Um, would, you, uh, would you say that it's uh, fairly important to, um, to respond to the public as trustors in various issues that it, come up? It is. You know, one of the difficult things, um, and I want to address that in two ways. First, one of the difficult things is when folks come and speak to you in public comment, and they raise issues. A lot of the issues that are raised are issues where uh, you really, because of the Brown Act and because of other ethical responsibilities, you can't respond. Now, I'll hear a lot of difficult comments from the dais, and I know that I can't take a position or suggest a position. It's not publicly noticed. The rest of the community has a right to weigh in. One person doesn't get to set the agenda. What I will do, though, is oftentimes follow up with staff off the record and ask, can you give me a report? Can you give me a feedback, feedback on what's going on with that issue? Um, you know, you'll, you'll hear a parent who talks about uh, bullying or, or a situation involving their child at a school. Well, that raises, you know, you may ultimately be involved in that from an expulsion hearing process as a board member. Well, that touches on the quasi-judicial responsibility of a board member, and you have to go into that as a neutral. You can't commit to one party or the other. But I think it's real important to notice, I, I look at uh, CSBA has a model that I've really uh, been a, uh, had a lot of allegiance to, and that is that there are four pillars to the responsibility of being a school trustee. Uh, the what we must do, and that is our legal responsibilities. You know, it doesn't matter what the community, what the budget, what anything else wants, we have to follow the law. And uh, then there's the what we should be doing. Now, the what we should be doing element is the relying upon the best practices, the professional research, the experts. And, and that's everything from how to run an effective busing operation to, to how to feed kids to how to educate them. 
but what are we looking at in terms of relying upon subject matter experts? And that's inside and outside the district. That's at the lowest levels of the district and at the highest levels of the district. Cultivating that information. That's what we should do. What we can do is probably the biggest issue we're dealing with right now, and that's the financial limitations. Um, and that can be the spatial limitations, the facility limitations of the district. Uh, and then the, and then the fourth pillar of that is what we want to do, which is that community involvement, that parental interest, that student interest, what we want to do. The reality is you can't rest that four-legged chair on any one of those pillars. You've got to have a balance to all of them. You simply can't, um, you know, we're not politicians. I, I take that very seriously. We're trustees who are elected. And I think there's a difference between being a school board member and being a city council member or a legislator because you're not there simply to represent an interest group. You're there to hold in trust the best interests of our students within the context of those four pillars. When you say you can't speak on a certain subject and you can't speak decisively to a specific issue, uh, but a lot of times it seems like it would be very nice to hear what any board member sees as a principle or a, or a value in terms of something, and, and we don't get that either. I want to actually go to the, um, to the question of, of what happened in the, the union situation, which was not on your watch. Where do you think that situation went wrong? I don't necessarily want to say it went wrong because it may well have been, and I wasn't there at the time, that it was the only approach to take, but it got narrow. When negotiations get narrow, particularly in times of great tension, when they get narrow, there's going to be a breakdown. Mm -hmm. And when it came down to the point of a health care cap versus the counter offers of, of some kind of a shared cost, you don't have a lot of playing field to negotiate over. And then the tensions go up. The union's point from the beginning was that, was that, uh, um, that the negotiators from the district were very heavy-handed in, uh, in their approach. It seemed that there was something that the board could have done about that. This really has to do with how things are said and how things are approached rather than you know, the substantive issues of you know, what the, the district can afford or what they can't afford. Well, and again, I, you know, I've, one of the things I did when I came on the board was I had a lot of conversations with folks on every side of the issues. I've met with our bargaining units extensively. I've met with district staff extensively. Uh, folks were very candid with me, um, both in assessing the others, their criticisms of the other side as well as their criticisms of their own performance in a lot of cases. I want to respect that candor because I need that candor and um, going forward. Um, so I, I have, you know, I'm real careful not to discuss really some of those conclusions that are drawn. But let me tell you that the principles that I think we have going forward. Uh, as a board, we recognized that the negotiation didn't go the way we wanted it to go as a district. It didn't honor our traditions in history. So we started with the IBB training. You know, 15 hours uh, over two days of training with our bargaining units. And now some of our bargaining units some of our bargaining units were unable to attend because of various scheduling issues. So we're going through another round of training with them, and uh, several of the board members will be participating in that. Not that they needed a second round of training, but we wanted you know, to show that we're there, that we're listening, and that we're engaged. So that was an important first step. The second step was to begin to engage our bargaining units, not in terms of a, let me give you everything you want. Of course not. But in terms of, let's start dialoguing now. 
the third thing is, and, and I, I, I've been speaking with the board president about this, and really I'm adamant in my belief that we need to make sure, we need to take time as a board and really just determine what do we collectively, and probably after the election when we, when, we, when we see the seven, what is our perspective on the board's role in negotiations? Because one of the things I've learned talking to other districts is in some districts the board takes very little role. It's um, staff negotiate, come back to us, and very hands-off, and hands-off with both sides. In some places, in counties that I, that I worked with, we watched, uh, in, in preparing for a negotiation I was involved in, we watched another county where not only did the board directly negotiate with the bargaining units, but they directly negotiated in public session. Now, I think that's a little extreme because you lose that ability to be candid. Uh, but I think, you know, as I listen to other board members and hear comments from bargaining units, I'm not sure everyone is on the same page in terms of what the role should be. I think everyone's close. We're all in the same book. But I think we need to do some definitional time. Uh, my suggestion to the superintendent was that we, we have some time as just the board, set staff aside for a moment and just brainstorm and talk about what is our role in negotiations. And then is it that we give guidelines to staff but then stay out and let those at the table really work within those guidelines? Do we want to be more directly involved or do we really want to, you look at, uh, I'll give a prime example, declaration of impasse. In some places, the board, the management, uh, devolves the authority to declare man impasse to the lead negotiator. In others, it's something that needs to come to the board for a vote. Now, and that was a major issue in one of the negotiations. It was. Um, you know, you talked about the um, interest-based bargaining training that you attended, and there was kind of an exchange, I like to call it a fist fight, at the Candidates' Night Forum over that issue. Um, what would you say you took away from that training? You were, of course, on the, on the side of believing in the value of the training, whereas your, your opponent suggested that this was uh, not as valuable. Well, I, I, I would, I, I think you, you need only ask everyone in the room. I mean, there was a lot of emotion outpoured. I mean, we had people standing up at the end in tears. Um, I saw a lot at of... At the training. At the training. I mean, a lot of healing took place between folks who really, you know, went to the barricades against each other. They able to take a step back. And what we did was we, we went through and we actually physically practiced in mixed groups, a district and uh, bargaining unit members, physically practiced effective skills for healthy negotiations. So you actually went through, if you will, kind of a mock negotiation process so that you could establish how to best do this. Well, I, I wouldn't, we, we did some mock negotiations. I mean, we did not some on topic, but I mean. But we, we did some interesting little exercises. We negotiated, I, the, the, the one that we all had a lot of fun with, we, ne we actually negotiated a contract where we started out with each side not sharing information. Everybody had their own set of data. And the negotiations were fairly hardcore, and you, you saw big winners and big losers, and then you, and it was interesting because the, the results were all over the map depending upon how it went. Then the situation switched, and each side was given all the facts, and there were no facts unknown to either side. Each side fronted all their weaknesses and all their strengths, and for the most part, what we, everyone found, you know, it, one, it doesn't get any easier to negotiate when you agree on all the information, but it was much more amicable, and it was much more... Um, there was a lot more partnership. One of the things I took away was uh, there are some philosophical divides over how a school district should spend money allocated to it by the state. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and some of those philosophical divides are wedded into inconsistent policy and laws with the state. You know, on one hand, they allocate your money to spend this year, but on the other hand, they tell you to adopt a three-year budget. Mm -hmm. um, so our, you know, I, I, our bargaining units have a good point. Spend this year's money this year. District says, but we have to adopt a three-year budget, right. and they'll put us into a state a negative certification and possible state takeover if we're not balanced over the three years. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a surplus that, you know, every dollar saved this year is $3, and that keeps us out of negative certification in the second and third year. So, so one of the things I took away was there's a major philosophical divide. How do we bridge that? Uh, I think that's been bridged to some extent by doing one-year contracts. But one-year contracts put us through this Process every again again. single year. Right. But that was the main point of the of the EGEA and and others at the time was that they they felt that the board was being too conservative at their expense. Um, I have to ask you've you've participated in two appointment processes, your own, of course. Yes. Which here you are, and um, the other that of uh, Bobby Singh Allen. Um, I expect you're a fan of the process since. Here you are. But uh, nevertheless, I would ask, what do you think could be done with the process to make it better? I think we've got to do a better job of uh, communication. And the last, the last go around, I think we, you know, we kind of relied on local press to cover it. We really need to be proactive in making sure that we get out. I would, this, the, the, the frustrating thing is the, the appointment process and the Ed Code and the Elections Code gives you a narrow window within which to do everything or you trigger that special election. I think that's the ultimate point of the, of the appointment process is to avoid an off-cycle special election. An on-cycle special election comes with cost. An off-cycle special election, had we in the Singh-Allen appointment taken that to the voters, we'd be having an election next March at a cost of $970,000. That doesn't serve kids. So to the extent that we can elongate the process, um, get more uh, dialogue, more out outreach to the communities. Uh, I I'm all for that, but you know, in the end, I think one of the the, the process is what it is. I mean, it, it you have to make an appointment. You have to you have to use your best judgment based upon a fairly limited scope of information. We we can't interview the candidates in closed session. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to be a public interview, and it's really hard to know anything about a person in 15 minutes. Um, but I think we've done a good job. You know, you look at uh, Obviously, I'm biased. I think the board made the right call in my appointment. But uh, but really, look at the appointment of Ms. Cooper Levangi ten years ago. Uh, she obviously was a was a a leader on the board, and it was I definitely felt a different sense a loss when she left. I was learning so much from her. You look at Mr. Roulette. He's just been a, a tireless advocate for kids, particularly kids who are most often forgotten. And then you look at Ms. Ms. Singh Allen, someone who brings a completely different perspective as a leader in the Indian American community, a growing community in Elk Grove that maybe necessarily hasn't had the best voice and has certainly experienced a lot of tragedy. Uh, you just received a major endorsement and, uh, from the AFSCME, the, representing the classified workers in the district. And in the endorsement, the union president, Jennifer Ballerini, said she believed in your principles and fairness. What did you say to them? I think I, I talked about who I was. Um, you know, I'm a judge. And at the end of the day, I firmly believe in listening to both sides, evaluating the evidence, and then making a decision. You can make it, it it's, we talk about this with training with our new judges all the time. You can make a decision that a party will not agree with. 
if they've had a fair hearing and they feel like they've had the opportunity to present their case and that you've listened, not everyone walks away happy with an unfavorable decision, but li most of them will live with it. And I think that was the thing that stood out to me with AFSME. They know my commitment in history to this district. Um, my mom was an AFSME member years ago uh, in Elk Grove Unified. They know that I'm going to listen. And our bargaining units know that I'm not cut from the, the old mold. The press release where uh, I read about this endorsement said that, they, that you filled out a questionnaire. What kind of questions did they ask you? Well, yeah, it was everything under the sun. I, I, uh, my involvement, um, my, con my, philo my philosophy as a board member, my involvement in the district, my involvement in government in general, my knowledge of government, uh, you know, asking philosophical questions about specific issues, you know, when, when is it appropriate to seek uh, the union uh, input, uh, what is your position on bargaining, should, should bargaining units essentially be held to one deal for everyone, or do you negotiate one-on-one -on -one and individually? You know, where do you think the board's role is in outreach? Um, and I answered, you know, I'll tell you, I gave them answers to questions that were not, an uh, were a lot of times answers I knew weren't going to necessarily please them. You know, they asked a lot about, you know, what is your position on crossing a picket line? And what is your, would you be involved in supporting activities to organize labor units in other areas? And I, you know, I had to be very candid. Uh, I'm an administrative law judge, and I, I deal with unemployment law. Ethically, I will not put myself in a position where I appear, where I give the appearance of favoring one side over the other in matters where parties would appear before me. Um, and I'm, I'm, ethics and integrity is central to who I am in my core. I, before I finished the questionnaire, I actually, you know, made sure I'd reviewed the ethical standards for judges in my office, talked to general counsel and uh, ethics advisors, to make sure that. I wasn't crossing any lines in terms of even participating in endorsement processes. I'd love everybody's endorsement, but um, I want to always make sure I avoid the appearance of impropriety. Um, you're quoted as having led an effort that saved the district five million dollars. How'd you do that? Well, you know, it, it, I was part. I was one of the members of the board, uh, working with facility staff. Um, you know, Mr. Pierce was able to identify. Uh, this opportunity to refinance our bonds. The refinancing the bonds was able to save at a minimum $200,000 a year. We could see, depending upon where our bond rating comes in, where the market is at at the time we close, we could see savings as much as $800,000 a year. Per, a year. Now that's money that can be then dedicated towards facilities issues, um, emergency repairs, that sort of thing, allowing us to, to minimize the impact on the general fund for that type of work. And that's, so that's over a, how many years? It's over to the 20-year life of over those bonds. Over 20 years. So that was a conservative estimate, five Con million. Conservative estimate. The other thing we've we're, the other thing we've done is you know I was I made the motion to appoint in area uh, area four, uh, Miss Sing Allen. That's a 900. That's a million dollars that we saved. That uh, some of the other candidates think we should have spent a million dollars for an election. Um, I disagree, and not especially not when we're cutting classrooms. The other thing that we've done is we've moved away from uh, applying to the State Mandates Commission for reimbursement of mandated costs. You know, we are 2012 and we're still waiting on mid-90s payments from the Mandates Commission. And those still go through an auditing process. The state always finds a way to cut the bill. We're waiting every year outlaying you know, up to $4 million in mandated costs that could be returned. 
we took advantage of a change in the law this year that allowed us to take an immediate $1.6 million from the state in lieu of applying for the mandated reimbursement. That $1.6 million, because of the changes in what mandates we have to follow now, is $100,000 more than what we believe we'd be entitled to through the mandates process. So we saved 100000 We actually made $100,000 more making that switch, and it's money that will come today, not when my kids have graduated from high school. The other thing that we did there is by not reporting those costs, we don't need to rely on outside contractors and district, and district employees to spend the hours generating the billing that goes to that mandates commission. So we saved money there. There's a public role for a trustee besides just making administrative and, and, and leadership decisions. Um, how would you describe that role? Well, one, I, I talk about the role of showing the flag. When I was in Afghanistan, I, I met a, a four-star general uh, from the U.S. Army, a Central, Central Command uh, leader, Admiral Fallon, not a general admiral. Apologize to my Navy friends. Um, admiral Fallon came to the compound I was at. He received briefings on uh, the training that the military was doing there. I was able to meet with him and talk about some of the issues in the justice sector and what we were doing as State Department uh, advisors. Now, the reality is Admiral Fallon could have gotten a driver, a report, a, a briefing that, that answered every single one of those questions. Admiral Fallon was there with a number of generals from NATO to show the flag, so to speak, to let the troops on the ground know that he appreciated their work, he was engaged in it, he was involved in it. And we, everybody talked about how great morale was after that, you know, the cleanup, the preparation for the visit, and then, and then uh, what it, the impact it had. So I think one of, the, one of those role areas is, as a board member is to go out and show the flag. You know, uh, we had our first pre-service days in two years this year. Where teachers actually had time to do common planning, to meet as a staff for day, prepare their classrooms before students came back. I thought that was such an important moment after what we'd been through as a district in the past that I dedicated a day and a half to going out to as many sites as I can, not to learn about what's going on at the site or to develop some new policy knowledge, but to let teachers know that you know, there's a board member who appreciates their work and we appreciate this change. And I told every single one of them, I'm committed to making sure we have pre-service days from now on. We're going to be moving into Common Core with new curriculum, uh, moving in a lot of new directions. We're going to have a lot of challenges from finances. I wanted to make sure that folks know that I'm there and that I get it and that we appreciate their service. Because it's real easy to sit and say, when, when times are bad, to say, well, the, the folks on the board, they obviously don't care about me because look what's happened. And, and you know, I don't know a single person on the board, and certainly not this board member, who even has any, takes any joy in the process of negotiations. I, I, would, I agonize over, over the thought of having to vote to lay one, one employee off. Um, we're fortunate. My wife's district, they have not managed their finances the way this district has. And so they lay off 300 teachers and then the next year they lay off 400. And they don't make the difficult decisions. You know, Sac City has 48,000 kids in 84 schools. We have 62,000 kids and we have 64 schools. Um, we have the smallest administrative staff. I was, I, I, you, you were at our board meeting, you heard the comment about Sac City Unified's director of PE. I leaned over to Dr. Ladd and I said, well, now I know why they laid off 400 teachers last year. They seem to have the funding for a director of PE. We have, in our education, in our pre-K-6 and K-12, two associate superintendents, one for each area, primary and secondary, four directors, 
plus one director who deals with adult education. That's it. This thought that, you know, so, so we've made the tough decisions. We've made the tough choices. You've been working with uh, students for years through this mock trial program, and it's just had great success. And, and, uh, but my question is, as a board member in visiting the schools, how do you see your presence there affecting them? You know, one of the things that I, I found uh, in my own work, the chairman of our board comes down and meets with the judges regularly. And it really means a lot to hear the man making the decision, sitting with the governor's office to talk about funding, to talk about furloughs. You know, I, he talked about what our furlough teachers have been through. I was furloughed three days a month, 15% pay cut. Then I was two days. I'm currently furloughed one day a month, losing 5% of my pay. I know how frustrating that is. You know, the state continue, repeatedly changes our travel reimbursement policy. It seems like every time you figure it out, you've got to go learn the system all over again, and they're always finding ways to nickel and dime you. And it's frustrating, and I get that. I, I understand that there's, there's reasons for it, but when our chairman comes and sits with us and asks, you know, what is the stuff that's affecting the grassroots? You know, and we tell him. The, the office in Chico isn't safe, and we're afraid. We're, we're concerned about having hearings there. That stuff we know doesn't necessarily reach the highest level because it's not the biggest priority. Um, the fact that the security alarm in, in one of our offices goes off too much, and the police now are don't come, uh, and you know the fear that what will happen when we really need them. I think one of my biggest roles is to get out to hear those grass level con grassroots level concerns. A teacher sat me down for a breakfast the other day old friend of mine, she wanted to talk to me about what she thought was one of the most important overlooked things in the schools, bathrooms. The fact that there weren't, the, the faculty at, at her school, the school was so old, it was built for a much smaller teacher population, there weren't enough faculty restrooms. And the faculty of the high school, they all have to go to the restroom at the same six minutes every, every couple of hours. And there wasn't enough room and people weren't getting to the restroom. I thought, you know, that's the kind of thing when we're talking about balance sheets and budgets and how do we keep those quality of life issues don't necessarily trickle up. So I think it's real important to get to that level and listen. And we had a teacher the other day who said, well, why is the policy decision to do this at my site with, with site-based funds instead of doing this? I don't know. Um, I'm not on your school site council. I don't make that allocation. But through that conversation, one of the things I learned was this is a teacher who feels dis disenfranchised by the um, school site council process and feeling like it, there's not a voice for her and the kids she advocates for there. So it's interesting to talk about and, and to talk about school site council and and the inter interaction with uh, the associate superintendent and the district office from the site, and just to hear the perception, because I think sometimes. You can address a lot of problems simply by addressing perception. When you hear, you know, you go back to the beginning of the interview, the board doesn't ask a lot of questions of staff on certain issues, so the appearance is the board rubber stamps staff and doesn't ask difficult questions. When the reality may be we're bombarding st staff with emails and questions before we get up there. So how do you change that perception? Well, for me, make sure that you ask those questions you asked in the email. Ask them again from the dais so that the public has a chance to hear those answers and overcome that perception that the board is a rubber stamp. You know, they say, I, I teach my mock trial kids all the time, for every, t every time you point a finger at one person, three fingers are pointing back at you. When you hear a criticism, it's very easy to 
you know, well, you don't know what we're doing. But to look back and say, why don't you know what we're doing? Well, maybe we're not doing a good enough job of telling you. Finally, I'd like to ask you, what, what is Jake Rambo about? What's your vision for our kids? What, what drives you towards the future? Oh, goodness. Where do I Easy start? <laughs> Where do I, you know, when I look at our elementary level kids, I want to see quality education for every child, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of their English language abilities. I want to see our kids getting to the secondary level, speaking English, reading fluently, and what do we do to accomplish that? Working closely with our staff as we look at Common Core and we evaluate Common Core as we go out and find the after-school program dollars that will pair those kids with programs that meet their deficiencies uh, and finding a way to do that in the budget realities. At the secondary level, one of the things I'm very passionate about is our academies program. Working as an administrative law judge, one of the things I've seen is the failure of a lot of students to develop job skills. Young people come in front of me, and people think this is a joke, but I hear it almost every single week. Young person quitting a job in this economy because they say they're harassed by their employer. But when you ask them to define harassment, and I, I'm not kidding, this is one of the most common definitions of harassment I get. Every time I did something wrong, my boss told me. Now, we've failed kids if we've developed a culture where they don't understand criticism and work ethic and expectations of employers. Our academies, in a time when we have such a high youth unemployment rate and they're not getting that entry-level job to learn how to be a good employee, our academies are meeting that need. Strict standards for earning academy cords and academy diplomas at graduation. Quality teaching. Our academies are changing the world. You, the solar suitcase program in the academies at Laguna Creek and Kasumas Oaks these kids are building a system that can be used to power hospitals in the third world that are being used to change people's lives, power wells so that people can get fresh, clean water. I mean, we're giving them job skills. We're letting them change the world. At Kasumas Oaks, the students have come up with a way to frame a house using 30% less wood and meet all codes, uh, code requirements. That's changing the, the world, and it's using kids and it's teaching them how to compete in the job market with those skills. I want to thank you for joining us today. I, I just really appreciate your time and, and your uh, openness. Thank you. Thank appreciate your time. Thank you. Our thanks to Jake Rambo, candidate for the EGUSD Board Area 6 seat this next election. You can connect to the Rambo campaign at www.ramboegusd.com. Radio Elk Grove also has a live call-in show with Mr. Rambo's opponent, Steve Lee, as well as all the candidates for school board from the Candidates' Night. This is Radio Elk Grove. You've been listening to Radio Elk Grove. Radio Elk Grove is written and produced by Denny Gomez, who is solely responsible for its content. Music is written and created by Jason Elmore. Thanks for listening.